Okay, if we open to Genesis 22. And I'll read till from 1 to 19. We all stand for the reading of God's word. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Okay, 
Verse 1 begins, now it came to pass after these things. After Abraham had dwelt in the land of the Philistines for many days and all the events that took place in the previous chapter, God, it says, tested Abraham. Abraham is about to be given here what must have been the biggest trial of his life. And it is described here as a test. Because the purpose of trials is really to test and to prove our faith. In the parable of the sower, Jesus wanders there. uh, There is a type of believer in the gospel called the rocky ground hearer. Who at first, they believe it with joy. When things are going well, they are happy to go along and and praise God. But when trials come, they they fall away and withdraw themselves from God and his people. You see, persevering in trials, it, it proves to us, not to God because he already knows, but it proves to us that we are not fur weather Christians. That we are not of those who only praise and thank God when the sun shines, but not when it's raining. And through trials, we get greater assurance. Because when we've gone through them, after we can look back and we can see how much we have grown in the faith. You see, sometimes you you may hear of a a certain Christian or Christians uh, somewhere in the world or maybe even in this church, but they are going through a severe and testing time. And a thought of worry may come to you, and uh, you may think, would I be able to remain faithful in that, or would I deny my Lord? We may see someone else's cross, and we may tremble at it. But number one, you're called to take up your own cross. We are not called to carry in that sense, uh, the cross that God has given for someone else, but the circumstances he has given you. He knows what is best for you, and he knows what is best for someone else to bring you to final glory. But number two, it is at the time you need it that God gives his people special grace to endure. You see... A Christian may read about another Christian in distant lands being imprisoned or tortured for Christ's sake. And they may wonder, would I be able to remain faithful and go through that? Well, maybe you wouldn't now because you're not called to do that now. But if God had you through that, then he would enable you. You see... It is only by God's grace that Abraham is able to trust God in this severe trial. If it was not for God's grace upholding him here, then you can be sure. I mean, if you read before this in the book of Genesis, you see Abraham fall several times. And if it wasn't for the grace of God upholding Abraham this time, you would see him fall here too. In Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, it says, But we also glory in tribulations, or we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that tribulation or suffering trials produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. 
You see, with trials, eventually God, he works them and he uses them to work a greater hope in us. You see, when a Christian goes through a trial, it may not be pleasant at the time. In fact, it's normally not. But afterwards, when you look back on it and you can see how God upheld you in that time, they produced greater hope, greater assurance in God. Uh, And the next time you go through a trial, uh, you're able to deduce, well, God has never let me down before. You're able to consider the facts. God has never let me down before, so he's not going to let me down this time either. And so God calls Abraham here and he says to him in verse 2, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now then, when God says to Abraham here, take now your only son, Isaac. Of course, Isaac was not Abraham's only son in a a literal sense. He also had Ishmael. But this is not a mistake, you see. Because what we are given, being given here in this passage is a, a, just a wonderful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, the Old Testament and Moses who wrote this speaks of him. And Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. You see, Abraham and Isaac here uh, are being given a most wonderful picture of what God would do with his son Jesus Christ, to pay for the sins of the world. Uh, Notice the the similar, similar language here. Abraham, take now your only son whom you love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. You see, this is what that, that is what this is a picture of. Abraham offering up his only son Isaac here is a picture of God the Father offering up his son Jesus whom he loves to pay the penalty for our sins. But something else I think worth noting here regarding Ishmael, his other son who's not mentioned is Ishmael if you remember, he was a child of the flesh. He was produced by natural means. Whereas Isaac, on the other hand, you see, he was the child of promise. He was produced by a miracle. Remember, Sarah was well past childbearing age and was given a child there. Well, in this picture of, of, of the gospel, I think there's a lesson here in God just discounting Ishmael as if he didn't exist. And the lesson is this. That in trying to be accepted by God, God does not accept our own efforts to pay for our sins. You know, last month I was in uh, Switzerland there, and they get a lot of snow. Uh, I I was showing them pictures of the snow in Manchester, and one of the brothers said, uh, no, that's not snow, I can still see a little bit of grass. But they, the church there, they took me up to this mountain. You went up in a cable car and then you sledged five miles all the way down it. I recommend it. <laughs> but when I was in the car park at the bottom there, 
I looked up and I saw this all the, this beautiful scenery of the snow and just pure and white everywhere you looked. And then I looked down in the car park and of course, you know what it's like there when it snows, there's all this brown and black sludge from all the oil and the tires and the dirt there. And I thought, wow, that snow that I'm looking at was once pure and white. But now... It's been mixed with the, with, the, with the sludge of the works of man. It's become something ugly. And that's really a picture of when people try to mix their own efforts, their own works, with what Christ has done to try and be accepted by God. You see, when people try to be accepted by God, when people try to become right with God by adding their own efforts, by adding their own works, what they do to trust in, as well as what Christ has done, they take a, a beautiful, white, snowy, and pure picture there, and they mix it up with their own dirt and oil and grime and sludge, and, and so it's defiled. Yeah. And we also see from this passage, you see, as we'll see from this passage as we go on, I should say, it is only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and him alone that someone can be right with God. And we are not to... In order to try and be accepted by God, we're not to mix our own efforts with it. Now then, in verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, verse 4, Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And verse 5, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. A couple of things worth noting here. Number one, Abraham, he sees his obedience to God here as worship. You see, when we tend to think of worshipping God, we, we can just think of, uh, you know, singing in praise and worship to him. And that is part of it, of course. I mean, I, I can imagine uh, Abraham as he went up this mountain here singing a hymn. You know, something like, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, as, or however it would have been in that time. But what I'm trying to put across to you now is that worship is much more than singing. You see, we are to worship God like Abraham here with the obedience of our lives, in your daily lives. Uh, you see, people have this unscriptural uh, distinction today between the sacred and the secular. You see, and that's how it was in the Old Covenant. All the priests did the so-called holy work. And everyone else did the secular work. But you see, in the New Covenant now, it's not like that. You see, in the New Covenant, we are told time and time again that we are all priests of God. You know that verse in Ephesians there where God has given pastors and teachers and apostles, prophets, to equip the church, the saints, for the work of the ministry. People take that verse and they say... You know, the, the evangelist is not to evangelize himself, but rather he's a, to a, equip the saints to go and evangelize. But that's not what it means by ministry there. 
It's got that wrong distinction. You read on in Ephesians what Paul means by ministry. Wives submitting to husbands. Husbands loving your wives. Children being obedient to parents. Slaves being obedient to masters. Uh, Application in your daily workplace. You see, this is why in Romans 12.2 we are told to present ourselves there as our spiritual service. We have to do all things we do in our daily lives for the service of God. You know, there are Christians today who think, well, you know, I'm not a preacher. They think I only work in a secular job, so I'm not as spiritual as so-and-so. But do you see how wrong that kind of thinking is? Because let me ask you this. You see, for the first 15 or 20 years of our Lord's life, Before he preached, he was a carpenter. Well, was Jesus any less holy then? Was Jesus any less pleasing to his father when he worked there in in a secular job? You know, I've seen Christian mothers sometimes who are beat up, even though they're faithfully devoting their lives and they're thinking, you know, they're serving in their homes, but they're feeling guilty. I, I should be evangelizing more. I should be uh, doing all this, this, and this more for the kingdom. But don't miss this. Do you know, after Jesus was resurrected, the first two things he did, number one, he neatly folded his grave clothes. He, he tidied up. And then he served breakfast which I might add was provided by Christians there, fishermen doing the secular work. <laughs> you know, uh, the other day I heard a, a dear friend say something which I didn't agree with. But he made a comment. He said, you know, some professing Christians, they just have, uh, you know, a 20-minute Bible reading time in the morning. And then he made this comment and he said, and so that's all they think God's worth, 20 minutes. That's just wrong. That is a a wrong idea of Christian living. You see, let's think of a Christian mother, for example. She has a Bible reading time, a time in the Word there. But that's not all she gives to God. She then gets the children ready, doing the work of the ministry, giving that time to God. She then, uh, whether she cleans the house for the Lord. You know, she sits down with the children and and plays with them or, or whatever. You know, serves a husband there. Goes for a walk for the glory of God. Garrett there can drink coffee for the glory of God. (laughs) But we are to see our our daily lives there as worship. Now, another thing I want you to notice here is that Abraham, he goes up this mountain now with Isaac, not really understanding what is going on here. I mean, he must have been trembling. This must have been, I mean, we can't imagine, can we, what a trial this must have been to him. And yet, he goes in obedience to God's command, trusting God. You see, this is true faith. Uh, Let me apply this. When a Christian does not understand why a certain thing is happening in their life, they say, 
I don't understand why this is happening. But they say, I'm still going to trust Christ no matter what. You see, this is true saving faith. When, uh, another example is when a person may come to the Bible. And they may, at first, they may, I don't understand why we are supposed to do or not do a certain thing. They may not understand how certain truths fit together. They may not understand certain circumstances in their lives, and they may learn later or they may not. But my Christian is that my point is a true Christian in those circumstances is not someone who sits as a judge over God's word, telling him what is right and wrong. But even when they don't have all the answers. Someone says to the Christian and they say, well, if the Bible says this, then what about this? Or they say, you know, if, uh, if God is true, then why is this happening in your life? Well, the Christian may well reply, I don't know. But I know this, I, I was once blind, but now I see. You see, God uses trials in this way because he wants to get us to a place where we trust him even when all else seems dark. God wants us to trust him more than the earth we stand on. Now then, the second thing I want to point out here is, notice he says to his servants, we will come back to you. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Abraham is going to sacrifice his son here. But notice he does not say, I will come back to you. But we will come back to you. You see, Abraham here, he does not know how exactly this is going to happen. But he goes up this mountain in full faith here, we see, that he will return with his son Isaac. And we are told in Hebrews 11.9 that he had some sort of resurrection in mind. You see, how, how, what happened there? Well, I think Abraham, he no doubt deduced. He, he, he considered the facts and he came to a conclusion. God has promised me. That he would give me this miracle child, Isaac, and through him I would have a multitude of descendants. Yeah. And God gave me this miracle. And so, uh, and he no doubt deduced also, just think of all the times I've been unfaithful to God and he's kept me. He's always been true to his word. I, I've, uh, he's already shown me that this promise, God keeping this promise is not dependent upon me because I did everything wrong. And so Abraham, he knows, he's learned by experience that God is true to his promises. And so there's a, a lesson here, believers. Whenever you're scared about a particular situation now or in the future, or whenever you're tempted because of this to do something in a, a different way that may dishonor God or uh, to lean on your own understanding, well, we are to deduce here like Abraham. And we are to think, you know, how many times God has been faithful to us in the past. We have to deduce that he's going to be true to his word and his ways. And take a greater assurance in doing things God's way. You know, give him the trust he deserves. Now then, 
Uh, Notice this picture of the gospel now in verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. You see, Abraham here is a picture of God the Father. Isaac, a picture of God the Son. And so Abraham taking... His only son Isaac here, whom he loves up this mountain, is really a picture of God the Father taking Christ upon Mount Calvary to pay for our sins. And notice Abraham. He places the wood on his son's back here, and Isaac walks up this mountain with the wood upon his back. A wonderful picture there of Christ carrying his own cross. But notice what it says here. The two of them went together. God the Father, God the Son went together in our salvation. It was God's plan. You see, sometimes, you know, people, they get the wrong idea. They get the wrong idea that God the Father was somehow angry with us. And so Christ, God the Son, had to calm the Father down by paying for our sins. Uh, They sometimes have the wrong idea as if God the Father was against us, but Christ is for us. And so Christ had to change the Father's mind. But not so. The two of them went together. You see, God the Father was not against us. It was God the Father who planned our salvation. It was God the Father who had the plan who sent his Son. For God, God the Father so loved the world. That he sent us his only son. It was God the Father's plan to send his son into the world to pay for the believer's sins. You know, there's a lot of trouble with uh, Muslims in, uh, in the Middle East at the moment. You know, we have a queen where I come from. But imagine if I, as a British citizen, uh, was kidnapped by Those people there. And imagine the queen. She made a deal. She she gave uh, Prince Charles or Prince William as a ransom for for me in exchange so I could go free. Now, could you imagine me coming away from that? Thinking, the queen's really against me. I mean, when you think, brethren, how much more that God the Father, that God would send his son. If God is for us, who can be against us? And also, since salvation through Christ, through what Christ has done, since it was God the Father's plan, then that means he will certainly accept all those who come to him in this plan by the merits of his son. You see, When someone believes the gospel, when someone comes to God through Jesus Christ, it's not like God the Father thinks, well, I don't really want to, but I suppose I better accept you since your sins have been paid for now. That's not the picture the Bible gives. It's quite the opposite. Remember how Jesus taught of it in the parable of the prodigal son there. Uh, When the guilty prodigal just had enough of staying in the pig pen, 
living for this world and self. And maybe that describes some here. And he, but he came to his senses and he says, I will arise and I will go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands. And he arose and he came to his father. And it then says, but when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran to him and fell on his neck and kissed him. You see, for all those who turn to God through faith in God's plan to save of sending his son, that of Christ being offered up, God is, God is ready and waiting to embrace them and receive them and welcome them and forgive them. You see, that is how willing God is to receive sinners who will come to him by faith in what Christ has done. That, my friend, is how willing God is, receive, uh, God is to receive you. If you will turn to him through faith in Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? There is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. God takes great delight and joy when guilty sinners, no matter, no matter how vile, no matter how indifferent they've been, to Christ and God before. If you will turn to him this day through the merits of Christ being offered up for you. Trusting only. That you can be accepted by God because Christ has paid your debt in full. If you believe that promise then God will be delighted to receive you. There will be joy in heaven over you. Uh, and this truth by the way. You know um. I mean, Spurgeon, he called the uh, prodigal the backslider's parable. Because the truth it portrays there, it's not only true at conversion, it is that, but not only. But it's also true when a believer falls. You know, when a believer falls into sin, they often get trapped into thinking, well, I can't go back to God yet. I first need to earn my way back. I first need to go in some kind of sin bin like they do in rugby or ice hockey. You know, where I have to spend a few... They've already repented, they're sorry, but they think I now have to spend a few hours feeling miserable. And if I, I, if I do that well enough, maybe I can go back in time. But you see, that's not God's design. Christ died for us while we were sinners. Not when we were good people. His plan is always for you to return to him through what Christ has done. And that is, his plan is always to return to him at once. That's what you're commanded to do. On the basis of Christ paying for your sins. As a thick cloud I have blotted out your sins. As a thick cloud I have blotted out your transgressions, return to me, he says. Come back, they're all paid for. You see, the believer looks at his sin and he wrongly thinks, I can't go to God with the stain of my sin. And that's what the unbeliever thinks too. He thinks I'm too dirty to be accepted by God. But God says, no, I paid for your sins. Look what Christ has done. They're all gone, I blotted them out. 
You know, when I was in the, the snow that time, another picture I saw there. I, when I looked at the, the beautiful scenery, and I looked at the sludge at the car park. I looked at the, the sludge in the car park and I thought, that's how I often see myself. And then I looked up at the beautiful white and pure snow and I thought, that's how God sees me in Christ. That's how he sees, you see, those relying on the merits of his son. Now then, in verses 7 and 8, Isaac, when he asked his father, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham replies in verse 8, My son, God, will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. You see, this is how we go to heaven. This is how we go to everlasting life. This is how we find all our sins forgiven and we find ourselves accepted by God. We go trusting in the sacrifice that God has provided. Not trusting in our own offerings, but trusting in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice in verse 9, as Abraham bounds his son Isaac here on the altar, from the words in the original language used and and also from just the context of the passage, when you read before this, you can clearly see it. You know, Isaac was born, he was weaned. Uh, Abraham, he dwelt in Beersheba. He planted a woods there. Takes a little time to grow woods. But Isaac is not a little boy here. It's estimated he's about 30 to 33 years old. The same age as Jesus in his ministry and going to the cross. But my point here is that Abraham is an old man here. And so his son Isaac could have easily overpowered him, but Isaac went as a willing sacrifice. You see, this is another wonderful picture of Christ in the gospel. When he went to pay for the cross for our sins, he did not go there reluctantly. No, he went there in great love for us. Christ went to the cross as a willing sacrifice. As it says in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. You see, what that's saying there is what enabled Christ to go through the sufferings of the cross is the joy beyond that suffering. The reward Beyond the suffering. And so he considered the suffering before him. And he considered the joy beyond it. And then in comparison, I mean the the shame, he just despised it as if it was nothing in comparison. And so he willingly embraced it. Listen, that joy that was set before him, uh, his reward was us. He delights in saving guilty souls. And then in verse 10 to 12 here, this is wonderful. We see a picture of judgment day for the believer. We read here, And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, so he said, Here I am. 
And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your own, your son, your only son from me. You see, this is how it will be for the believer on judgment day. All our sins we have ever committed will be exposed. Sins in thought, sins in words, sins in deed. And all our sins will cry out against us guilty, guilty, guilty. Your sins will cry out against you, you must be punished. Your sins will cry out, condemn you. But you see, for the believers, for those who have come to believe this good news, Christ will cry out, do not lay your hand upon them. Not even a blow. And just as Abraham looks up here in verse 14 and he sees a ram, a male lamb, a picture of Christ that are caught in the thickets, Christ will say, I have already paid for. I have already been offered up for their sins. So there is no condemnation for them. You know, I, I really hate that kind of Arminian theology that teaches about all the condemnation for the believers on Judgment Day. No, no condemnation really means no condemnation. Because Christ has took it all, paid in full. You see, just as in verse 13 here, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. We do not have to be offered up because Christ has been offered up instead of those who will trust him. We do not have to be punished because Christ has been punished instead of the believer. And you know, let me give you another application here. Once again, a, a believer, when, you know, when they fall, maybe a, a mother is put to a wit's end by her children. I know your children are all really good here. And, <laughs> so think hypothetically. But a believer can, after even they've repented, they can get into the trap of wanting to put the knife into themselves to, to pay for them. But Christ cries out to you through his gospel, lay not your hand upon yourself, believer, in those times. I have provided the sacrifice. Amen. And verse 14, and Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Uh, mount Moriah, incidentally, where all this happened was later the place, we are told, where Solomon's temple was built. And it is said that this mountain was later called Mount Calvary. And on the very place where Abraham stood with Isaac here, I believe, and was shown this wonderful picture of the gospel, Christ came up this hill with the wood of the cross upon his back in this very place, and God provided the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And that phrase there in verse 14, the Lord will provide, or many of you are no doubt familiar with the Hebrew there, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide now. People use that phrase 
Today, you often hear them using it for temporal means. And he does that. The Lord will provide. He provides many of our temporal needs. But I mean, but some say it as if it's just a magic spell and, and all they want is to t- temporal provision as if the sacrifice of Christ means nothing to them. But you see, the Lord will provide the sacrifice for our sins is the context here. Yes, he provides for other things. You know, for all those who, I've seen some circles where they quote this left, right, and center, but they're after temporary things, but the cross of the Lord providing the sacrifice for them, that means nothing for them. The cross is a secondary issue, and they're not saved. So, when God provides for you believers some temporary thing, thank him for it, but never forget, that he provided you the sacrifice for your sins. In fact, remind yourself in those times when the Lord does provide other things. And lastly, just a couple of things. In the following verses, verse 15, God comes to Abraham for a second time out of heaven. It was talking, we touched on it at the men's theology study yesterday, but... You have people say, you know, there's joy at conversion of knowing your sin's forgiven. And they say, that's the best moment of your Christian life. But notice God comes to Abraham here a second time. And he comes to Abraham many times. You see, my point is you can have fresh experiences of God and greater assurance. So don't be deceived into thinking, believers, that, you know... You get all you get of God at conversion. No, it should be as Jesus said to Nathaniel, you will see greater things than these. And so lastly then, I want you to notice in verses 16 and 18, God gives Abraham here the same promises he's already given him before, earlier in Genesis. So you say, I point this out because I don't want some to think that it was because of Abraham's obedience here that God gave him this promise now because we've already seen Abraham fail earlier in Genesis. But you see, after seeing God endure Abraham through these trials, Abraham is given a greater assurance in these promises that they will come to pass. You see, this is what is happening here. He already had the promises. But after going through these trials and seeing himself being obedient in these trials, he's got a greater assurance now that God is bringing, because he can see God upholding him there. You see, the more we go on with God, the more we learn to trust him more. And so then, to close, the gospel is Christ being offered up instead of you. That is what you are to trust in to be saved. Not you being offered up, but Christ being offered up instead of you. Not you being acceptable to God, but Christ being acceptable to God instead of you. And the gospel 
demands a response. You know, Jesus, he came preaching the gospel and his message was summarized as this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the reign of God. If you think of Adam back in the Garden of Eden, when he was deceived there by Satan, Adam became his own God and mankind with him. He, mankind deciding what is right and wrong. Well, to come back into the kingdom of God, to repent is to come back into it. Is to come back under God's reign and rule. To come back, that's what it is to repent, to come back under God's rule. Where God decides what is right and wrong. Where it is to let God be God. You know, you have people today who, they say, yeah, I, I believe, but, and they just live their life totally how they like. They have a total disregard for what God's word says. But, At least in the first century, you can't be in a kingdom without having a king over you. But you see, it's not our repenting, it's not our coming back into the kingdom of God that saves us. Because it's like, you know, if you went to a judge and said, I'm going to be good from now on, I'm going to come back under the rules of the land. And you was guilty of things before, well, he'd say, well... It's great. You've got a change of heart there, but I'm going to send you to jail for what you've done. You see, it's not good enough for us to think, well, I'll reform from now on. Because we're in trouble with God. But you see, this is how we come back. We come back believing the the gospel. We come back believing... That Christ has been offered up instead of us. That is what God invites you to believe. And it's a command to believe. To repent. God demands a response from you. You know, as Elijah said on Mount Carmel, choose this day whom you will serve. Why waste any more of your life? If God is God, follow him. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Not tomorrow, not next month. Always now. You know, Spurgeon once said that you should never, after you've explained the gospel to someone, you should never tell them to go home and and think about it more or because you're telling you're giving them you're telling them to remain in disobedience but we're called to believe on Christ now to trust him now and if you will rise up and follow him if you will as Jesus said the kingdom of god is here the reign of god if you will turn back to him come under god's reign and rule have Jesus as your king let him reign over you if you will do that believing and the way that the way you can do that is because Christ 
has accepted you because he has paid for your sins, then he will save you. He will forgive you of every sin, past, present, and future. And God will not only forgive you, but he will adopt you into his family. He will bring you up as his child then. If you go astray, he will convict you. He will chastise you as the child whom he loves, and he will bring you back on the narrow path and bring you to glory. Let's pray. Our Father, I just thank you for your glorious gospel. I thank you for Christ being offered up instead of us. I thank you for that we can, for the, your promises always come true. And the promise of salvation in your Son. I pray you would enable and give the gift, gift of faith. Open eyes to see this today. That they can come back. People can come under your rule and reign. And be saved because of what you have done. I pray you would strengthen believers. I pray you would help Christians here in the workplace, in the college, in the homes. To serve you and worship you in their daily lives. And I pray for those going through trials. That you would help them to deduce that you are worthy of your trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.